Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Truth, insight, empathy, reason. These are some of the most effective weapons when humanists attack. Welcome, thank you for tuning into our program. My name is Roger Kimmel-Smith, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Jeanette Hill Porter. Dr. Porter is uh, an assistant professor of strategic communication at the University of Missouri, Missouri School of Journalism, Columbia, Missouri. She got her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Before that, a master's degree in multimedia journalism from Virginia Commonwealth University and a bachelor's in economics from Swarthmore College. Uh, before entering the academia, Jeanette worked in the back office of the Boys Choir of Harlem for a decade or so. Her focus is on mental health communication, and it's an issue that could hardly be more timely. Before we dig into this rich topic, Dr. Porter, I'd like to invite you to talk about your own background and how your life's journey has led you toward this mission and toward the work you're doing now. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I don't really think we could be talking about anything more important. No matter who's elected, we're still going to have societal and structural uh, constraints on how we talk about this topic um, that are going to be life and death issues for uh, many, many people. According to the National Institutes of Health, approximately 20 to 25 percent of the American population at any given time is suffering from a mental health issue. So um, at any given time, including yeah. the present time. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a large figure. Yeah. Well, actually, well, actually, I would that statistic is somewhat is a little old. So it's probably higher now. Uh, right. But in in whatever right. these days, it, yeah, these days, but whatever constitutes normality, uh, 20 to 25 percent. I grew up with my dad, uh, an African-American man born in 1910. He explained that he had at one point been hospitalized uh, for a psychiatric issue, but he never used the word psychiatric. The psych prefix never really came out of his mouth without uh, opprobrium. He, he, he didn't dig people who did the psych stuff. Um, <laughs> What's wrong with the psych? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just it, it didn't. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Uh, but Ooh, uh, but um, he uh, he had no patience for it and uh, no time for it. I was a freshman. Uh, at, in college at Swarthmore, when I can remember a feeling of huge unhappiness just descending on me literally like a wet blanket. People talk about that feeling, using that description a lot. It just sort of pervaded everything and not understanding where it came from. And that was the beginning of my own personal journey into depression and to bipolar disorder, which is what we used to call manic depression. It was interesting sitting in a psychiatrist's office uh, after having, fortunately, a workplace that was friendly to uh, taking care of oneself, working for the boys' choir at the time, um, sitting in a psychiatrist's office and being handed a book to say, this is the description of the symptoms for what I think is going on with you, and recognizing not myself, 
but my dad. We first mm. thought uh, that it was straight depression. Uh, then learned eventually through experience that what was going on with me was uh, bipolar depression or bipolar disorder. Um, and it became very clear to me that my dad had bipolar disorder, was never properly diagnosed, and never uh, was treated for it in any useful or helpful way. His refusal to acknowledge that, I think, was par for the course for a guy who was born in 1910. I mean, we didn't even really have decent treatments it, uh, decent is my word. We didn't have decent treatments for for the for depression until the '90s. But um, as I went through a journey of trying to find out what was going on with my brain chemistry, and being extraordinarily fortunate to have both a family and a workplace that understood a psychiatric disorder as uh, as a disorder, not as a character issue and as a, a brain chemistry issue, I discovered how hard it can be to get the diagnosis. Well, the diagnosis wasn't hard. The treatment was hella difficult. Am I allowed to say hella on here? I remember when the doctor first said to me, well, we're going to try you on this. And I'm thinking, well, you know, when your, your spleen is out of whack or your, your blood levels are not right, uh, they take a little blood from you and then they stick it in a machine or they do something in a back room. And then you find out what's wrong with you when they know what to prescribe. At this point, it's like, no, we just try stuff until we figure out what works. I was like, really? They put a man on the moon and this guinea pig <laughs> approach is the best you can do? <laughs> it took 20 years to get my meds right. Uh, 20 years of on and off treatment. I am complaining because I don't think it should take that long, but I'm not complaining because my experiences were better by far than many people in our mental health systems and especially very the, the experiences better by far than the experiences of people who are not well resourced. Right. I eventually got stable. I take, take two pills a day. The noise in my head cleared up. Uh, I mm. went back to school, got a master's, got a PhD, Basically, what I would like is for people to talk about mental health and mental illness in a way that reflects our best understanding of these issues and not in a way that reflects the fear and shame and stigma that have accompanied these issues for centuries. Mm -hmm. Then when you think about the experiences of African-Americans uh, right now, our disproportionate involvement in the criminal justice system and an educational dysfunction and our less than optimal economic situation, I am convinced, though I have not done the analysis like a good academic, but I am convinced that diagnosing and addressing currently unaddressed mental health needs would take us a giant step further. So my job is to change the way we talk about it. So we'll take the giant step. The other pole, you know, if it's bipolar, is that, yeah. is that it line? started out with depression because the depression was easier to recognize. Although in retrospect, um, there were also periods of mania while I was an undergraduate. This is what I, I want to ask you about. Since yeah. You recognize that from the past and or, or even from earlier than college. You know. With a better understanding of what depression looks like and how it manifests, the depression began in high school. My dad loved me dearly. And I loved him dearly, but he was a difficult person to uh, deal with. 
extremely overprotective and simultaneously very demanding. And we had titanic clashes about what I was allowed to do and where I was allowed to go. And I quickly discovered that one of the ways I could get away from him while still being in the house was to go to sleep. So if I was in the house and I wasn't eating or actually doing schoolwork, I was asleep. Hmm. Sleeping to excess Hmm. is one of the things that uh, a lot of depressed people do. Sometimes, of course, when they're depressed, they can't sleep at all. Uh, But uh, somnolence is is one of the symptoms of depression. But of course, Uh, you were, you know, you were very academically proficient and academically ambitious during all this time. For this is what I wanted to say. We fast, you know, we fast forwarded you pushing your way through college, through Swarthmore College, you know, uh, and through an academically demanding high school as well. Uh, yeah. Do, um, am, I, am I remembering right that you were student <clears throat> council president your senior year of college? At Swarthmore, yes. Um, so there that's was, a lot of pushing yourself. There, was, <laughs> there were some really memorable depressive incidents. Uh, during my college career, um, I can remember going to sleep, uh, locking my dorm door for essentially three days and um, my friends contacting the dean. Like, we don't know if she's alive or dead in there. She won't answer the door. Mm. I was uh, physically fine. I just didn't want to see anybody because I had horrible feelings of inadequacy and general horribleness. Mm. Trouble focusing. Uh, failing my honors exams, which meant I had to write one, two, at least two papers during the final week of the semester. And doing that on about two hours sleep a night, that would have been mania. Perhaps useful (laughs) momentarily. Well, the thing about mania that uh, is super interesting to me I once watched uh, an episode of a show that was about interventions and it showed a room full of people on cocaine. And I came into the middle of the show a little bit late. So I didn't know what they were on. I just looked at this room full of people and I'm like, oh, they're all manic. What's the show? And then clicked the, the titles and was just like, oh, oh, so that's what it must be like to be on cocaine. I know what that's like and I've never done cocaine. It's terrific for creativity. Um, for lack of sleep. Um, I've had some brilliant ideas. Um, I have sketched out plans for uh, structures and art and designs. I would, under normal circumstances, I would tell you I can't draw a circle. I can remember a period when I was uh, very disoriented by the Iraq war. Um, I came up with some really whiz-bang protest signs uh, that were really the sort of thing where you're like, I wish I could remember that when it's time to have a conversation with somebody. It's great when it works, but you can't do it indefinitely. You really shouldn't do it for long because um, the crash. Yeah, and it sounds like it's not, not that good for, uh, for feeling grounded in reality. No, no. The crash is Titanic. I am also, speaking of being grounded in reality, in reality, Kay Redfield Jamison's written a book about the experience of uh, an unquiet mind, a memoir. And some of the stories that she tells about um, uh, what she or some, she told, somebody she was talking about, people have bought cars, houses, boats under, you know, while manic. Um, fortunately, I was lucky to escape my with uh, about $15,000 in credit card debt, which when you're working for a nonprofit is a fair amount of money. Uh, but it wasn't 
unrecoverable. You know, I, I didn't do anything irrevocable. Risk-taking activity generally is a, a hallmark of mania. Mm. And um, I think I have a guardian angel who's working seriously overtime. I am yeah. very fortunate, very fortunate. I'll say amen to that. And I was very moved to hear you say that, you know, you recognized as the, as you grew more familiar uh, with and sort of able to uh, articulate your own symptoms, you recognized them uh, as parallel to your own father's. He had uh, grandiose ideas. Um, he would launch projects that were insufficiently resourced and anybody in a quote unquote normal frame of mind could see that they were not going to work for lack of support. Uh, but you could not tell him that. He would make promises and plans that he couldn't possibly back up. But when you're manic, that all seems perfectly logical and it's all going to work. In retrospect, I can see his periods of mania and also his periods of depression. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm guessing that you also see a, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, a silence, a way of dealing with the issue without dealing with it that <clears throat> must have impacted how you see this as a communication issue. While I was working at the Boys Choir of Harlem, um, people would notice that I wasn't at work two days, three days at a time. And one of the things that people would say was, have you prayed about this? Have you talked to your pastor about this? Hmm. Um, I did not have a faith practice. I was raised culturally as a Protestant. We didn't attend church on a regular basis while working at the boys choir was really one of the places that I learned how important uh, the church structure is to a lot of American African-Americans, but it wasn't my first resort. What I heard was silence on the issue outside. You could, you could talk to your pastor about it, but other than that, I, I heard silence. Too blessed to be depressed was something I heard a lot. So therefore I must be fine. One of the things that depressed people learn to do, uh, of all stripes learn to do, there's a ton of writing about this, is we learn to perform fineness, wellness, I'm okayness, because it takes so much energy to unpack what's actually going on with us emotionally. And there's so little reward for bearing your soul, as it were, that we just, I'm fine. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah. And it, it yeah, takes some sort of, you know, societal consensus around that, that fineness. It's a, uh, a part of the social contract, I guess, you know, yeah. you're asking not to be asked by saying exactly, that. exactly. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm, oh, I'm fine yourself. It's the beginning of many a conversation. Um, and it's this deep. Uh, it's not an answer, but, and you're actually absolutely right. It's, it is the part of the social contract. Nobody really wants to know about what's going on with that, uh, with you uh, in that way. I was extremely fortunate to have a mom who was well-adjusted, who cared and cares. She's still with me deeply, 
but didn't know how to help me. She had no experience with this. A workplace that cared, but didn't know how to help me. And friends who cared, but didn't know how to help me. And I blame the not knowing how to help people on this, uh, uh, the, on this societal contract that we have that we don't discuss this stuff. As a society, it is parallel in some ways to the, the quality of individualism that we see in American society. Very much so. I actually worked on a paper that did an analysis of discussions of depression in American media and Chinese media. In the American media, we sampled uh, TV news, uh, print news, uh, radio news, um, and similarly broad in, in China. And what we found was that um, over two papers, actually, um, the second of which I didn't work on, but was affiliated with the first, was that in the United States, we talk about depression as an individual problem. Um, if you're depressed, that's on you. You've got to go make an appointment. You've got to go take your drugs. You, 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 you. And it's definitely you. It is an other. It is not. Uh, otherwise, uh, otherwise, just handle it. Yes. <laughs> because we don't yeah. want to hear about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in China, depression is much more of a public health problem. Mm-hmm. The extent to which the person is suffering is part and parcel of a social condition which needs to be addressed. Recognized um, as affecting others. Yeah. No. Along with the, uh, with the personal uh, individual framing, we talk about it in stories. We don't tell people that this is what depression looks like and this is what uh, you can do about it uh, or one can do about it or better yet, what we can do about it. It's um, sensationalized and it's episodic. Six in 10 women suffer from postpartum depression, depression and Josie Morris couldn't take care of her kids because she couldn't get out of bed. And, and it's Josie Morris's problem, not we don't have um, enough parental leave and uh, women are disproportionately stuck with childcare conditions. Our daycare situation is uh, god awful and, uh, and, 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 and all the things that, you know, and it costs a zillion dollars. I don't know exactly what the zillion is, but I'm sure it's easily into five figures to have a baby in the United States. In France, uh, if it's more than a thousand dollars, it's expensive. All of these are issues that would affect uh, postpartum depression uh, opportunities for women. But you know, again, it's her problem. It's your. Pro- it's not my problem. It's not our problem. Um, the way we talk about this affects the way we experience it. Much of what you said about your your own story seems to reflect what you've said about the African American community that there are huge impractical uh, barriers to care seeking. You know, I wonder what, when and how you came to recognize and to overcome such barriers in your own case. I was living in Manhattan. In Manhattan, you can't swing a cat without hitting a therapist. You know, everybody's got a therapist. This might be true in on coasts, large coastal cities, hmm. maybe in Houston, maybe Chicago, and it's not true anywhere else in the United States. Mm-hmm. So when I left New York, um, that was when I discovered, first of all, the absolute 
shortage, uh, in some cases, emergency level shortage of qualified mental health professionals um, mm. outside of big cities in the United States. It's impossible to normalize going to get mental health care when there's no care to get. So that's an issue for uh, people of color who are not living in big coastal cities and maybe in Chicago. When you put it that way, it makes it seem like an also a central way of describing the country's political divide, the red-blue divide, the, you know, the rural-urban divide. Yes. Even allowing for the fact that it is possible to become a therapist or a mental health practitioner with a predominantly Christian focus, that is to say a, um, a worldview that accounts for the importance of your faith and the tenets of your faith within your care, there's not enough of those folks either. There's not enough folks, mm-hmm. period, full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not, we don't have enough folks. For folks of color, um, in particular, one of the things that is absolutely impossible is the lack of qualified mental health pr- practitioners who are of color. Uh, It can be, especially if you're having to be convinced against your cultural norms to go seek care in the first place, uh, you don't want to have to walk into somebody's office, sit in a chair, no matter how comfortable the chair, and explain racism. You want somebody who gets the ground state from jump, right, who understands why it's problematic that people at your job use the N-word all the time, or make funny jokes that aren't funny. You need somebody who understands that. And there are portions of the community that get it and portions of the caretaking community that don't. The um, Association of Black Psychologists is trying hard uh, to, uh, to get more members, but another big issue has to do, and I realize I'm bouncing all over the place with this, but just in terms of the sheer number of practitioners, to become a doctor is extremely expensive. If you want Black doctors and practitioners of any kind, you need to have a course of preparation that individuals can afford. Right now, the way you pay for med school, unless you are at the tippy, 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 tippy top genius of your class, the way you pay for med school is with loans. Nobody's assuming half a million dollars in debt and going into a specialty that they can't get paid in a fashion that will enable them to pay off that debt people who may be the first person, the first professional in their family or the highest paid professional in their family when they uh, graduate from, from med school, if they can't get reimbursed because our whole insurance structure is set up in such a way that uh, mental health care is badly paid, then people aren't going to become psychiatrists. They'll become open heart surgeons or dermatologists or something that they can get paid well for and quickly. Even though I consider myself dealing with the supply part of the, of the, the, equa- the supply demand of equation, that, that you know, I'm, I'm trying to get people to demand care, uh, demand in an economic sense, not you know, to walk around in the streets with flaming torches and pitchforks, uh, but to demand uh, mental health care. If there's nothing there for them to get that's culturally appropriate, that's a problem too. When you left New York City, you uh, moved to a rural town in Virginia. You started working for a newspaper down there. I'm wondering uh, whether this is 
how you came to see this topic from the standpoint of communications. I worked for uh, a Barnes and Noble about an hour away from my home, got fired for being late constantly, was late constantly because I was sleeping a lot. I was fairly depressed. And when I lost my health care associated with the job, was fortunate enough to have a mom who could pay COBRA. Uh, Don't even get me started on the way that our health care is attached to our work, our labor in this country. That's like That's a whole nother podcast. I had been seeing a therapist uh, while I was working who um, I realized in retrospect was not a therapeutic experience for me. She may have been a great uh, psychiatrist, but for me, she was not. And when uh, I realized that I was paying um, a lot of money and my uh, I was paying her money and my mom was paying money in order for me to pay her money for a non-therapeutic experience, I said, you know, let's try the community mental health care. Uh, It's less expensive. I'm certainly broke. And uh, if it's horrible, well, this is horrible. So, I mean, at least it'll be horrible for less money. And that turns out to have been the decision that turned my life around. I saw a team there of a therapist and a doctor who took a look at my medication profile and my symptoms and situation and said, I think we can crack this. Let's try some things. Um, and instead of being satisfied with the, with the, my affect with the medication I was on, which was what several previous practitioners had done, they tried several different things in succession. Never, you don't mix this stuff up, but several different things in succession. Was it the third or the fourth med they tried did the trick? It was enlightenment in a jar. And the thing about being depressed and manic is that each state seems eminently reasonable and logical while you're in it. Uh, As one of my bosses once told me, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. Eminently reasonable and logical Hmm. when you're in it, but you need help to break out of it so that you can see, oh, Hmm. that's not good thinking. That, that doesn't make sense. The last Christmas before I got properly medicated, uh, yeah. which was 2006, I uh, had time on my hands and I wanted to make Christmas ornaments that said peace, faith, hope, and joy in several different languages. Two and a half hours later, I quit frustrated because I couldn't figure out how to write shalom in Arabic. My mind was in this <laughs> loop. That was what I had to do. Like that was what I had to do. On the medication, it occurred to me that I didn't have to write it in Arabic. (laughs) Yeah, I would have been okay with the simple salam. (laughs) There you go. You see, in English, with a broken brain, it never occurred to me to make the task simpler. It just didn't occur to me in a manic state with depressive overtones to make the task simpler. On medication, it's like, oh. Well, I mean, first of all, there's the internet. We could see what we could order. And if I'm dead set on making them, then we'll just write shalom or salam. I mean, it's going to be okay. So then I I had capacity. Um, I went back to work. I had strong writing skills and was looking for a job that I could do without having to drive an hour into Richmond. 
Um, and I went to work for the local paper with a stunning, stunning timing in 2007, right before the bottom fell out of the American economy. I was a general assignment reporter in the sense that um, I often did features, but I got thrown at anything that they didn't, that the editor couldn't cover. It wasn't very big. It was a family owned newspaper. Sure. Um, I learned to take quasi decent pictures. Actually, I got a camera that took quasi decent pictures. I'm still a terrible photographer. And I learned to, to write a little bit better. Um, after about three years of this, they were like, you know, uh, we want you to be the editor uh, when our current guy retires because he's getting on up there, getting looking at, at retirement. And I said, you know, I don't have any formal training in this. I really should probably learn how to newspaper. Uh, so um, I drove uh, an hour each way into Richmond a couple of times a week to take some classes and then decided to get a master's in journalism. And while I was working on the master's, um, I did a story on the suicide rate in Amelia because we'd had a number of suicides in a short period of time, maybe over, maybe it was th three and six months and, and maybe five over a year or so. Um, and it was tight knit community. So it was not, these things didn't just vanish. I mean, you knew and you knew what the situation was. And that was when I discovered that while my mother had been very supportive and my friends had been very supportive and were willing to talk about uh, me being uh, depressed, not manic so much, but depressed, um, and certainly could recognize depression, I discovered that nobody wants to talk about suicide at all, in any way. I wasn't setting out to write a sensational story by any means. I was thinking, well, in each of these five cases, what did the families see, you know, in mm -hmm. retrospect, looking back, mm -hmm. what did they see leading up to this horrible event that might benefit somebody else? And not one of the five families would talk to me. They wouldn't even talk to me off the record. Um, although I guess you couldn't really go off the record in a town that small. In some cases, one member of the family would be willing to talk to me, but others were like, oh, no, 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 no. And in some cases, nobody in the family would talk to me. And that was when I realized that mental health and mental illness is a verboten subject in this country. Whereas a hundred years ago, I could see why you might not want to talk about that. We have treatments now that can literally save lives. I saw that particularly within the black community, the recourse is to faith. Uh, the recourse is not to medicine. And that just mm. generally mm. we don't have these conversations. And I decided, you know, we're not going to make any, any strides here until we change the way we have this conversation. And for my model or my analog, if you will, look at breast cancer. In the 70s, you might see somebody with an obit that said they died of cancer. You certainly never saw an obit that said they died of cancer of the breast or breast cancer. And people mm. never talked about it. People would talk mm. about the big C in very hushed tones. No pink ribbons, no blue ribbons for prostate cancer, no Susan G. Coleman run, no, none of that. That was a taboo, stigmatized topic as mental health still is. Yes. Yet there's been a change. Yes. And do you, and do you attribute this to effective communication, strategic yes. communication? And I by do. Who? 
And I should have said, as, as if were I a more strategic communicator uh, in my daily habits, I would have said what you just said. But I attribute ah. a lot of this, in the case of breast cancer, to the Susan G. Komen Foundation. Their politics may not be everyone's cup of tea, but her sisters, a Komen sister, raised this issue, started wailing away at it, and would not shut up about it, started raising money for it. It exists in a in a book by Clow Witter called The Biopolitics of Breast Cancer. If you make money available, academics will do research. There have been other uh, narratives about the way the discussion around breast cancer has changed. Betty G. Ford was one of the first women as a, as a first lady that she had breast cancer was not radical, that she talked about it was radical. Was she also a pioneer in that same way around alcoholism? Yes, very mm-hmm. much. And that one... It's still a bit of a tough sell, but that's also a mental health issue. Addiction is a mental health issue. Of course. Uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving did a lot there, but again, they changed the way we talk about it. They put this into the conversation. They would not shut up about it. And we treat these issues differently today because of it. Uh, Rosalind Carter and the Carter Foundation, Carter Center, excuse me, Uh, are big proponents of mental health and mental illness dialogue, still tough, still tough. Patrick Kennedy, who uh, has had both addiction and mental, other mental health issues, is uh, trying to raise the, the volume on this conversation, still tough. But I'm throwing my lot in with the folks who are trying to change this conversation in not even the hope, in the expectation that when we change the communication around the issue, we will change the behavior around the issue. When you make money available, people want to research it. When you make reimbursement available, people want to treat it. But you first got to change the conversation. Mm. Um, How else do you conceptualize, uh, you know, the... The, the issue of stigma and taboo in communication about mental health and, and culturally specific factors that, that aren't well recognized, but need to be um, brought out. One of the things I found while researching my dissertation, which isn't a book yet, two things blew me out of the water with that. I, 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 w- I was very surprised What I expected was to talk to a bunch of African-American Baptist ministers, which I did, and I expected them all to tell me that their congregations didn't want to talk about it and they felt uncomfortable talking about it. And I figured if I talked to 40 of them and they all told me the same thing, that would be a pretty good indication that I was onto something. Hmm. Maybe 30 of them told me that. But the other 10 told me some wrinkles on that story which really made my jaw drop. Um, well, granted, it doesn't take much to make an academic's jaw drop, but um, some, there were some wrinkles in the story that were pretty interesting to me. One was that because of the history of African-American disenfranchisement, that historically the only institution in the United States that we have ever been able to lay claim to as a people has been the church. It's the only institution we control So it's an institution from which we take our community cues and where we build status. A man can be a janitor 
uh, on his job. A black man can be a janitor on his job. But if he's a deacon in his church, he's going to be respected in the community. Because in Protestant faiths, the way you, we, we have that evidence of blessedness, the, the, that Calvinist thing. If you are blessed and favored of the Lord, it will be manifested in your life. You got a little bit of prosperity gospel going in here, just a bit. Conversely, if you have troubles and you've prayed and they don't go away, that is an indictment of your faith and your walk with God and therefore uh-huh. of your status in the community. If you have uh-huh. troubles and you've prayed on them and they don't go away, you're not a good Christian. So there are African-Americans who will, who know full well that they have issues that they're praying on, that they're not being changed because faith without works is dead. They also need to go to the doctor, but they're not going to talk about this in a faith con- in a context. Um, and they won't, they don't feel comfortable with any other frame on the issue. So the idea that you could think that you were a bad Christian because you had mental health issues had not occurred to me in any way, shape, or form, that Mm. our need for status and for belonging would affect the way that we deal with a Mm. health issue. But it's just like another way that society, in this case, the black community, you know, is uh, impressing upon the individual the demand to bottle it up. Yes. (laughs) One pastor, I, in the, in the, I can see his face and I don't want to call his name because um, I, I, many of the pastors use pseudonyms, but this quote was vivid. He said, we are masters of Maybelline on Sunday, meaning that, you know, we know how to come into church. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Everything's fine with me. I got Mm -hmm. God and I'm good on a facade of despair. Connected to that was that the to be a pastor in the black community is so important. It's such an important position. It's so respected that pastors are the people to whom everyone brings troubles, any kind of trouble. So pastors are hearing all this stuff Mm. week in and week out and they're developing a situational depression. You know, it gets heavy to walk around with the weight of, 10, 20, 60, 100, 120 people. They're expecting you to, if not solve their problems, at least lead them to solutions. A lot of these would be untreated, unacknowledged mental health conditions people are bearing. Exactly. And those pastors can't go to get help. Because if they're seeing someone with the psych prefix, right, it's an indictment of their faith, their walk with God. And I... I would not posit that it's a a scientific causation, but there's certainly a correlation, certainly a correlation between pastors I spoke with who were able to be open about their own personal issues, whether they were, you know, depression or substance abuse or any other issue. If they were able to be open about their issues, they tended to have younger, 
more intergenerational, more dynamic, vibrant congregations. Pastors who weren't open about these issues, who wouldn't acknowledge them, wouldn't discuss them, their congregations tended to be older, smaller, and poorer. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. altogether, there were a number of them, quite a number of them. The Black church, because of the Black church, no longer holds the same position in some communities that it did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s for a number of reasons. See, all this stuff gets wrinkly. Churches tend to be uh, family. You, You go to the church your parents went to, but people have moved. They may have moved from the city to the suburbs or from the country to the city. They are not going to their home churches. So those churches that were planted at the beginning of the 20th century are aging and shrinking. The new churches that are opening either in cities, many of them, or uh, in suburban areas, again, they're intergenerational, they're richer, and their pastors tend to be more open to issues around faith and help. In one, the pastor's wife had schizophrenia. And she was so afraid of what her congregation would say about that, that on the several occasions she had been hospitalized, Mm. she would not allow herself to be put on the prayer list. She Mm. is the wife of the leader of the congregation and she would not allow herself to be put on the prayer list. A battle between the the forces demanding silence and bottling it up uh, individually, and those others, like we said at the top of the show, that's it. But but this affects others. This is not just an individual issue. Very much. That breaks. Very much. That breaks. It breaks the silence Very and blurs the truth into the into the room. Very much. Very much. So I would say that within the African-American community, particularly, um, it's not so much that there's been this fleeing to secular humanism um, with respect to the theme and title of our show, uh, but there's been a demand for faith informed by reality. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to the doctor. That's what I'd say I'm seeing, especially among younger African-Americans. I mean, it's so profound that you say, and it seems like you've you've worked your way to this understanding, both inside and outside of the academy, that for African Americans, the church is is you know the key institution, uh, the one in which there can be relationships and hierarchies that are trustworthy. It's perceived as coming from the outside. Um, yes, and I would illustrate that distance with a story. Having gone to Chapel Hill, it's a stone's throw away from Durham, and I was privileged to speak to three different ministers, two pastors, one the, the present and one the past, and then an all minister at Union Baptist in Durham, which is the city's, if I believe it's the oldest and certainly the largest African-American congregation in Durham. I would call it an entrepreneurial church. They have their own school. They have a very active ministries in many ways. 
I would not call it a, pros- a prosperity gospel church, but I would call it entrepreneurial in that they believe that the fellowship that they uh, achieve through their worship can be extended to benefit them in a lot of other ways. And they actually have what they call a ministry of congregational care and counseling, which was uh, started by a, a woman who became, who was a psychologist, who was also a minister at the church. She'd grown up in the church. She was, she perceived a need and her pastor perceived a need and they worked together to set this up. And one, if you uh, are a member of the church, you can get, I believe it's up to eight sessions free with either her who is a psychologist they have a licensed clinical social worker and a certified therapist so the the three different approaches all to mental health issues and one of the things i wondered and so i asked her was um is it important to people that you speak to them in to the members of the church in biblical dimensions or you know speak of of a divine plan if you're talking about healing or, you know, a general message. And what she said, well, Tanya Armstrong was, is the name of the minister who um, uh, runs this ministry. And what she told me was that in about 70% of the cases, no, it wasn't so much that people needed a biblical or a Christian reference. It was that they knew they could trust the people in the church. It was a trust issue. Being affiliated with the church allowed them to get past the distrust that they felt from much of the medical establishment and move on to actual therapeutic work, two complications with that approach. One is Union Baptist, as I was trying to convey, is a big church. It's a power church, right? They had the budget. A lot of small churches don't have the budget to do that kind of thing, to keep people on staff or make it possible for people to see that. So the money is always sophisticated program. Yes. And the Baptists, unlike, uh, say, Catholics have a diocese where money comes in at all levels and some goes up and some goes down, but it all gets spread around. Baptists, the the, the spreading around of the money, um, because it's non-hierarchical, is a little rougher. It's not quite the same. Uh, There's some moving around of the money, but a lot of what comes into the church stays with the church. So if the church is poor to begin with, the resources aren't there for that. The other is that the mental health community and the faith community historically are a bit like chalk and cheese or oil and water. I mean, you can put them in the same bottle and shake, and then they just separate out to their separate corners and glare at each other. That's got to stop. That's absolutely got to stop. Well, right. I mean, that's uh, some of what has been going on in my mind as I've been listening and trying to put together what we've discussed so far. The the faith and trust currency that you described as, you know, effectively taking place in church communities, I'm guessing, is much more troublesome, if not just plain absent in the rest of the mental health, the psychiatric, the, you know, the medical, uh, all of those fields as they have related to African-Americans historically and to the present. And so the therapeutic relationship relies on that, that sense of empathy that's founded on trust and if you can't even get that on a limited basis, 
it would be very hard to make those therapeutic relationships work and to make, as you said, to make the demand increase. You know, I guess mental health differs from physical health in so far as you have to demand care, yeah. you know, or perhaps you have to demand care to physical ailments as well, but there are f- perhaps fewer barriers or we've overcome more of them. There are, there are fewer barriers, uh, not few enough, but there are fewer barriers. And I mean, Inward ones. It, it, yes. As well as, as well as, you know, uh, societal ones. Yes. So we've arrived at a level of care now, generally speaking, that it's possible to get, say, your blood pressure taken without too much trouble. Your diabetes numbers can be checked. If your arm's broken, it hurts. If, if, if you have, if you have, we, we screen for cancer. If you have, um, uh, any one of another, you know, a dozen somatic illnesses, there's an indication that um, if you can afford it, if you have the insurance, you will go to seek help. And if you can't afford it, the emergency room is there, whereas people can live for quite a long time with pretty crippling depression and not seek help right. because they may not know what healthy feels like if their insurance will cover medication but won't cover talk therapy which is very common or will cover a pitiful amount of talk therapy even though all the literature the evidence indicates that the best approach is a combination of medication and talk therapy people may or may not take the medication when they're not actually feeling issues being worked out in a therapeutic context. Mm-hmm. And for African-Americans who historically and statistically are likely to come to uh, mental health care later in the progression of their illness and sicker, the emergency room for mental health is pretty horrible, absolutely right. horrible. Right. I um, have a friend who is a white woman who was having some issues with depression and because of a, a thing that she said and a miscommunication with, a, with a, a provider, she was deemed to be a threat to herself and spent the better part of two days on a gurney in an emergency room psych wing. I don't know if you've ever been to the emergency room at all, but if you're upset about something, it's not a good place to be. And if you're depressed about something, an emergency psych ward is not a good place to be. And she had good insurance, a husband to advocate for her and me. This was in a major university, a major city. You know, there were supposed to be resources there. If your illness is that far advanced when you present with a mental health issue, your experience is going to be pretty crap, at least to begin with. Yeah, on the other end of this, of you know, this the same spectrum of failures that you're saying, and and you know, emergency band aids. You have something like the Walter Wallace. Walter, exactly. No. Exactly. The cops are um, the cops are coming because the family called nine one one. But you know, 
they wanted help transporting he him. And the same happened. Right. The same happened in Rochester. The same probably happened. Not that that didn't happen to Sandra Bland, although mental health was an issue in her case. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know how many more hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, have found themselves in the same situation. Right. Uh, we're very fortunate now that we're beginning to have cities again, a lot of them coastal. When it's made known to 911 that the case is a mental health case that helpers are being dispatched without a police or a law enforcement mm. presence. Mm. I did what's called a ride along as a newspaper reporter in, in Amelia uh, in rural Virginia. The shift began around, what was it, five-ish or six-ish and first had to do what he had to do while people were awake and home. So there were reports on robberies and serving some nonviolent types of warrants and that kind of sort of low-key, but it has to happen kind of stuff. Then there was a call uh, to a cabin that was very remote. And um, he told me before we, he turned off the ignition to the car. He says, if I'm not the first person out of that house, you put this in reverse and get out of here. Just get out of here. <laughs> He explained when he got back in the car that this was a person who had enough money for his meds or food. In good months when he could afford his meds and eat, he would take his meds and he'd be fine. When he didn't have enough, he didn't take his meds and then anything was liable to happen. That we live in a country of the richness that we live in and that there are people who are facing this kind of choice, I will call it a Habesian choice, is a problem that we are, we had come as far as we came in terms of the Affordable Care Act, which wasn't far enough, and that we're now trying to step back from that is a problem. Mental health parity, which was a part of the Affordable Care Act, and which many insurance companies are trying to retrench from, is a problem. So you see there's umpteen moving parts to this issue and I, I sort of settle on and around communication, but I've had to learn a lot about the rest of it to see that if we want to advocate for changes in these laws and these policies and these institutions, we've got to be willing to talk about the problem. How do you figure out you know, effective ways to understand the cultural conversation on such a broad and multifaceted topic and then intervene effectively in that conversation? We need to listen a lot. And we need to listen a long time. And we need to develop relationships and listen in the context of relationships, which is not quick. And as an assistant professor, I can tell you that the pressure is on me to do all the quick research I can do for tenure. All right. Uh, you can't wait until your longitudinal work shows its uh, long time future results. Yeah. There are a lot of issues before us as Americans that need what I would call slow research. Silicon Valley has this conversation about failing fast. You know, you try something, it doesn't work. You try something else. You try something, it doesn't work. You try something else. And eventually you find something that works. Hmm. Okay for widgets. Not so good for humans, in my opinion. <laughs> we need support 
for slow research. We need support for deep research. The medical establishment needs to listen more acutely to the needs and ways of its patients. If we are going to put the medicating of mental health issues into the laps of general practitioners, which is something that a lot of uh, insurance plans very much want to do, they don't want to pay for specialist care or the specialists aren't there, we can't be telling general practitioners that they can only spend 10 or 15 minutes with a patient. That's not going to work. In the parts of the country where the, the therapeutic culture is lacking, the temptation may be stronger to, for, for general practitioners to absorb more of this function. Well, I'm carrying a picket sign for the public option. So, um, I mean, I, I just, we, we need, I, but, people, uh, talk, people talk about socialized medicine like it was, you know, shortly after that, like, you know, the earth's going to crack open and the, the seas are going to rush in and that's going to be the end of civilization as we know it. <laughs> and I'm like, um, what's so bad about healthcare that doesn't cost you money? They might have to absorb some of this responsibility from the pastors. The faith folks and the medicine folks need to find their common ground, then they need to acknowledge common ground. That's someplace that I hope to be able to help. I think a lot of medical folks, especially medical folks who are involved in more acute phases of medicine, um, where they're aware that there's a higher power, you know, it's like it'll be up to the patient. Um, there's been a lot of work that done, done that shows that um, recovery is not entirely a medical phenomenon. An intangible dimension. Yeah. As a yeah. humanist might put it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think that medical education is getting better at helping medical students to understand that they operate in tandem with an intangible dimension. However, our, our insurance uh, structure is incentivized to heroic measures. I think if we do more listening earlier and less cutting and sewing and radiating and, and heroicing <laughs> later, we'll have mm. a better quality of life. What may get you out of bed one day may be your meds and another day it may be a prayer. And either way, as long as it gets you out of bed and moving forward, you're going to call it a win in the ultimate interest of the patient, not the practitioner, whether the practitioner is a pastor or a physician. It's, it sounds like you're promoting a, an emphasis on cross-cultural communication exactly. between, between these two parts of society, these exactly. two institutional structures. Exactly. And two languages. Yes. I, um, I didn't say it would be easy. That's why it's the Tombstone Project. Pastors need to cooperate with uh, physicians in educating their, uh, their, their parishioners, their congregants. When you feel like this, you may call it the blues, or you may just say, I'm hearing voices, or I may be thinking at, at you know, warp speed, but what we call that is depression or schizophrenia or mania, and it is a medical condition, and I'll pray with you on it, and then I'm going to help you find the medical care that you need. And at the same time, physicians need to understand that pastors are very important, very rightfully, very influential people, particularly in the African-American community. Um, and that they need to be treated with respect, that their 
discipline is a discipline just as real, just as important to their patients mm. as their own medical discipline is. And you could put this under the heading of, of cultural competence, yes. right? For healthcare. Providers. Very much so. Very much so. If you come to the field as a mental health practitioner and you're dealing with people who are not like you, you need to not assume that the people that you're treating are going to see things the way you do. Um, their way is not wrong. Uh, your way is not right. Uh, their way, there is a rightness to be found in their way and it's your job to help them find it and reach it, not to tell them that they need to be mini use. Cultural competence ultimately comes down to respect and cultural respect comes down to a certain humility. Well, whatever, whatever is the opposite of the arrogance yeah. you put out there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing that arrogance in many, many areas of life right now, and we need less of it. We need less of it. Mm -hmm. Listening is certainly the least appreciated, least recognized, and perhaps least practiced of the communication skills. Very much. Very much. My favorite author is Terry Pratchett, a British uh, uh, fantasy uh, novelist. And in one of his books, there's a character who is a listener. He gets paid by the hour to listen, endos the listener. And I was like, wow, what a good idea. <laughs> a worthy idea. Mm. Wow. So um, Dr. Jeanette H. Porter, let me ask you how you are viewing the current uh, campaigns and demonstrations around policing and you know, the efforts to reduce the harm police cause in crisis response situations, you know, certainly seems to have exposed just how central mental health is in this whole cycle of police violence that the country's going through. I respond to that issue, that whole issue in two ways. First, as an academic, wow, this is fascinating. We can look at the historical <laughs> antecedents of this problem. Oh, goody, lots of grist for my research mill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, then just as a black woman, I'm just tired. I'm tired. I was tired when uh, when I first saw the George Floyd video. Um, I was tired when Trayvon Martin got shot. I've been tired for a while. Um, but I understand the tremendous privilege that comes with my position, with my education, with my comfortable house and a car with gas in it um, and insurance and stuff. Um, so I don't really have time to be tired. Uh, but mental health self-care tells me that it's important for me to acknowledge that I'm tired. So first up and straight up, I acknowledge. Copy yeah. that. Yeah, I'm tired. But I suppose, that, you know, there. in addition, there is some good that you can conceivably do. Yes. From the position um, you're in. Yes. And that's important to me. That's very important to me. Um the first thing I think to understand is that the antecedents of policing in the United States are slave patrols in the South. 
the British have the policing system that they have because of the Sir Robert Peel and the Metropolitan Police Force, the Bobbies as they were known, came partly out of a need to um, bring some order to increasingly chaotic and crowded cities because of the Industrial Revolution. But they were dealing with a serf-like class of people uh, at that point, but they were never dealing with slaves, at least not in London. The United States did. And there are things that we do and say and attitudes that we have toward policing that are accepted because of the people we policed. For those people who are saying abolish the police, I'm not saying we don't need some organization or institution that serves some of the functions that police currently serve, but we need to radically rethink the whole concept of law enforcement in this country and who does it. We need to rethink how we prepare those folks. We need to think where we cite the, literally where we physically put the, 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 the jails, the, especially the prisons. Where do we physically put the prisons? There, the number of rural places where we put restrictive institutions mm-hmm. which are staffed by white folks with uh, less than four-year degrees, in some cases with only high school degrees, because the jobs those people used to have have been sold away to other low-wage countries, and the agriculture has been traded away to other low-wage and low-input low price countries. That's a dynamic that's looking for trouble. You're setting the weak against the weak in a kind of a gladiatorial situation, you know, and whoever comes up on top uh, gets the lollipop. And that's about what they're playing for is lollipops. Mm. Shane Bauer from Mother Jones did uh, an awesome book on that situation down in Georgia. I saw the kinds of people in the rural community in which I lived. I would not want them to have charge of fragile people. Mm. And we know that our jails and prisons mm. are the largest, in some cases, the only mental health facilities in our country. Cook County, it's either Cook County Jail or LA, I think it's Cook County, mm. has the largest population of mentally ill people in the United States under one roof. Deinstitutionalization was a great idea. We turned everybody loose from institutions that weren't great and then didn't fund the community care. So we only got half the job done. Uh, Nobody's saying we should have bedlams here, but we've got to have care. And it's got to be well-funded and provided by well-qualified people with empathy as well as education. Hmm. And getting back to the, the, as far as policing is concerned, if the racial divide is the original sin of this country, it's playing itself out every day in our police situations. I feel privileged to know uh, some law enforcement officers who I think highly of. And in many cases, they are working directly opposite the attitudes of their uh, stations or of, of their precincts, whatever you call their subdivisions, because that's the culture that they're working in. Patrick Skinner, follow this guy on Twitter. He is a cop in Savannah who has some of the most intelligent things to say about policing that I've heard in this country. He's done 
some op-eds for, I think, for the New York Times, uh, maybe a few other places. But basically, as far as he's concerned, everybody is my neighbor. He, yeah, he puts on a uniform and yeah, he gets in the car, but he's taking care of his neighbors. And that's the attitude. Radley Balco, the rise of the warrior cop, um, talks about how we tie the development of um, the warrior mentality uh, in our policing systems to the rise of the Black Panthers. Daryl Gates in LA was instrumental in the 60s in saying that we've got to have some kind of an approach to these Black radicals before they get too strong for us to control. The first uh, approach to SWAT was born out of the sniper in the late 60s at UT Austin, who was a white man who had literally a brain tumor who was causing him to think erratically and violently and who went into a tower on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin, barricaded himself in and killed several people. At that time, cops were carrying revolvers and they didn't have the firepower they needed to get him out of there. And what does that come from? Our, oh, I was about to cuss again, our, our, this country's love affair with weapons. In Australia, they had one mass shooting situation and they basically took the, the, the assault weapons out of the entire country and they haven't had one since. It's a great idea that a country should be able to defend itself. But when those words were written in the constitution, it took what, 30 seconds for a, a skilled rifleman to reload? I mean, that was the best we could do. The attitude of a lot of white folks toward the right to bear arms comes directly out of the fear of disgust for uh, black folks. We have the, the black white divide in this country reinforces our, our insane arms purchases and our insane arms purchases reinforce the black white divide. We've got to call it, we've got to name it, and we've got to stop it. And some of that stuff <laughs> is a mental health issue. The reason that I got started on this whole question was looking at suicide in my rural community where mm -hmm. the suicide rate last time I checked was three times the state average because it was a rural community and because people were more likely to try to kill themselves with guns and people who try to kill themselves with guns are much more likely to be successful than those who try any other method. Nobody's saying you can't hunt deer. I'm actually 100% in favor of hunting deer. I have hit two with cars and deer are <laughs> that doesn't count <laughs> yeah yes deer are frequently a nuisance nobody's saying you can't go hunting but this weapons of war in the hands of private citizens it goes with the, the warrior mentality of a cop when the mm. cop should be a guardian mm. not a warrior mm. um it's all of a piece it's a big 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 conversation yeah i mean i guess it really forms the other pole perhaps subculturally speaking to the the therapeutic mentality which you know puts empathy and listening yeah. and caring at the center yeah yeah eugenia chang's just done a book on that x plus y talking about how we should stop talking about stuff in terms of gender you know like men and huh, do hit and women, nice, warm, fuzzy, and start talking about individual versus communitarian thinking that the world, well, I can't speak for other people, but the world I want to live in is a world where people come together and make a decision 
um, and then work together for the common good, not this world where you go it alone. I'm, and even the people who go it alone don't go it alone. It's just, it's a fiction that we tell ourselves. It's, mm. it's a good story. It's a part of a story mm. that we, you know, it's very entertaining, but it's not real. And it, it's not adapted to our brains. It's not adapted to the way we're wired. It's not adapted to our biological needs. We need people and we need, we all need help sometimes. Brings me to uh, the last question I wanted to ask, you know, just just to have you say whether there you have specific ideas you want to pass along to viewers about how to be supportive of friends, relatives, coworkers, people in their lives who are either in need or who you think might be suffering. One of the nicest things anybody ever did for me when I was suffering a depressive episode I was supposed to go to a friend's, a, a couple's house for an Easter brunch. And I just couldn't do it. It was like the combination of getting washed, dressed, over to their house with a bottle of whatever I was supposed to bring. It was just like one step too many. I just couldn't do it. By that point, I had at least learned that it's better to call and let people know that you won't show up rather than just let, just not show up which took a long time to learn, by the way. But I called and I was just like, I just can't do it. And they said, would you like us to bring you a plate? It told me that they weren't mad at me, that they understood that it was beyond my control. And they fed me. Um, I'm not saying you should go around leaving food outside the door of random strangers' homes. <laughs> But um, sure is a loving question. It is. And I think maybe. Maybe something as simple as when you ask how you're doing, if the person is somebody you care about, stop and ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. How <laughs> are you? And then listen. The asking and then the listening might be where we need to go next. I'm tempted to leave it right there. Dr. Jeanette Hill Porter, recognizing that we have had a, a broad, wide ranging and to me, many splendid conversation. I applaud you for your refusal to oversimplify this extremely complex and multifaceted field. Roger Kimmel Smith, I can't think of anybody I would rather have had this conversation with. And I thank you. And that does it for When Humanists Attack. Thank you for watching to the end. So I hope this means you like us. Please uh, do those YouTube actions, like and subscribe and click the bell and look down below in the links uh, to our Patreon account for When Humanists Attack and our social media and watch us again soon.